All right. Well, last week we went into pneumatology and we talked about the a study of the Holy Spirit. And um, it was, uh, I hope it was an encouragement to you. I know I enjoyed going through it and just refreshing on some things about the Holy Spirit. Sometimes uh, we know things, but we forget about them. We don't think about them. And um, we, we just, we just, let go of some of the most powerful truths of Scripture, and we just don't even reflect on it, and so I hope that it was an encouragement to you. Well, tonight, we're going to look at another one, um, and it's, we're going to be in Matthew chapter number 16, verse number 18, is where we're going to start. Matthew 16, verse number 18, and tonight we're talking about ecclesiology. Ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is what we're talking about tonight, and ecclesiology is the study of the church. The study of... The church. We're going to talk about that for a few moments tonight. Ecclesiastes, or uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter number 16, verse number 18, as we think about ecclesiology. Now, before we jump into that, uh, first, first times are often uh, something that we reflect on as, as something that's important. We could probably all remember, uh, maybe, uh, you know, pro- well, maybe not. We, we may not remember it, but at the time, it was a big deal whenever our child says their first words, right? Um, you know, whenever, they're, whenever you have that, your first baby and, and you're sitting there and it's, and, and it's making all kinds of noises, but for your baby to actually say their first words is, is something special. Or maybe the first time they take a step. Uh, you know, that's, that's a special thing, um, you know, and, and we were blessed. We were able to capture Jace's first steps um, on, on video whenever he did it, and uh, it was, that was pretty special. I don't remember what happened with Kenoa or Jack, Jackson. Um, I think we just, you know, uh, we'd seen enough babies walk at that point. But anyway, and so, uh, you know, how that is. It's amazing how that works. But um, fir- first times and first things are important. And so as we come to Matthew chapter number 16, verse number 18, we actually find a a word here for the very first time in Scripture. It's the very first time that it's mentioned. In Matthew chapter number 16, Jesus is, is speaking this familiar passage. And if we start down in verse number 17, it says, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, uh, speaking to Peter, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Okay. And again, we know, what is he referring to? Well, right before that, Jesus said, Whom do you say that I am? And Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the, of, of the living God. And Jesus says, You're right. You're right, Peter. Congratulations. You got that one right. Verse number 18. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, there are many um, that believe that when Jesus said this, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, that Jesus was saying, Peter, you are the one, and we're going to build this church upon you. But whenever we study this in the Greek, we find out that whenever he referred to Peter, uh, Peter was Petra, just meant a little stone or a pebble. And whenever he said upon this rock, it was uh, Petra. I said Petra. It's Petras, or uh, 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 was what he was referring to, to Peter, Petras, which is a little stone, and but he said upon this rock, Petra, which is a city made of stone, I will build my church. Now, this is the first time that we find in the scripture the word church mentioned. Uh, the word church in the Greek is the, the word ecclesia, ecclesia, and you'll have a blank there. The, the ecclesia is a called out assembly of born again baptized believers. Okay, a called out assembly, born again baptized believers. Okay, this is what a church is, ecclesia. 
The very definition of the church flies in the face of those who would believe that it is only a universal church, um, not an individual assembly of the church. The very definition is an assembly of believers, okay? Some would say that the church is a reference to all believers around the world. And while there is truth that believers collectively are often referred to and, and called the church, that doesn't mean that God didn't intend there to be a local assembly, a local church. And so some would say that the church isn't important. That's another thing that they'll, that will say. Um, but they, they'll say things like, why well, I can worship God without going to church. And while it's true we can worship God without going to church, God's commanded us to go to church. Uh, in, in, Matthew, or in Hebrews 10, 25, he says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. He says, don't, don't forsake that assembling together. Don't, don't, don't lose that. Don't miss that. He says, this is important. He's commanding, don't, don't forsake that assembling. Okay, so God thought that the church was important enough to put a verse telling us not to forsake going to it. And so it's important to go to and then to know about the church. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk specifically about the church. It's going to be a two-part um, message that we're going to look at. Couldn't condense it all into one, and so we'll, we'll look at one half and then, and then the next half with the, the next one as we talk about structure and some different things like that. Okay, so first of all, where did the church come from? This is important. If we're going to understand the church, the first thing that we should ask is, well, then where, where did it come from? Uh, this, is, this is vital, okay? There's much debate about where and when the church began. Where did it start? Well, in Acts chapter number 2, verse number 41... The Bible says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto the church about 3,000 souls. And so if they were added, that means that the church must have already existed. There are some that have, have said, well, the first church was the church there uh, after the day of Pentecost. That was the very first church. But if they were added to the church, that means something had to already be in existence. In Matthew chapter number 18, verse number 15 through 17, says, Moreover, thy brethren shall trespass against thee. Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall not hear thee, thou hast gained If he shall hear thee, hear thee, hear thee shall has gained thy brother, but if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established, and, it, and if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. Okay, so obviously uh, Jesus couldn't command him to go and tell, uh, tell to something that didn't exist. All right, so again, we see this is how Jesus is dealing with, uh, with, with a brother or with somebody that you have conflict with. He says, okay, go to them first, and if they won't hear you, then, then bring somebody else with you to try to hear them. And, and if he still won't hear you, then you have to go to the church. Well, if the church didn't exist, then who in the world would they go to? Okay, so clearly it must have been here. And in Matthew chapter number 16, verse number 18, he says, And I, also I said unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, the idea here is to build up my church, all right, to build it up. So um, where did this start? Where did the church begin? Well, I believe Ephesians chapter number two gives us insight into this, okay? Ephesians chapter number two, verses 18 through 22, it says this, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles' 
and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye, all, ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. And so Ephesians chapter number 2, I believe, gives us the foundation, the beginning of the church. What's it say? It says that it was the foundation was the apostles and the prophets, and Jesus Christ himself was the chief cornerstone. So I would submit that I believe that the first church began with Jesus and his disciples. It met the, the requirements of a definition of a, of a church. Uh, it was a called-out assembly. They were called out from the crowd. Uh, they, Jesus was the teacher, the preacher to them. That's what he did. He taught and he preached. And uh, the disciples followed. They listened. Uh, they were, they were uh, in and of themselves a church uh, together, a church body together. Colossians 1.18 makes it very clear uh, that Jesus is the head of, that, of the church. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So, you say, Kyle, are you going to be dogmatic that that's when it started? No, 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 I'm not going to. Uh, you might have a different opinion of when it started, and that's fine. We can, you, you, are, you are perfectly willing and, and able to be wrong. But anyway, uh, you know, we, uh, no, I'm just kidding. We, uh, but the key is, is understanding that, listen, the foundation has to be Jesus. Jesus has to be the cornerstone, and he's the one that, is, that it's all about. He is the head of the church, and he's the one that we should look to for everything, okay? So the next question, uh, after we answer that question, where did the church come from, and seeing that it was built upon Jesus and the, and the disciples, the, pro, the prophets, next question is this, well, why are we an independent Baptist church? Okay, so this is, this is important. Why are we independent Baptists? Why, why do we have that name on our sign? Why do we have that name on our literature? Why aren't we just Whitehall Church? You know, why, why are we uh, known as a Baptist church? Why, are, why do we call ourselves Whitehall Independent Baptist Church? Why, why would we call ourselves that? Uh, there are multitudes of buildings that call themselves church. So what makes the difference and why would we call ourselves a Baptist church. Now what's, what, what is it that makes the difference? Well, it all comes down to the beliefs, okay? And that's why we're studying doctrines, all right? Because that's the, as we talked about in the very first week, remember, whenever uh, Jesus was there with his disciples and he said, you know, the rains, the rains came, the floods, you know, the floods rose, you know, and he said, built upon the house. And we saw the, 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 the one that was built upon a rock, and we saw the one that was built on the sand, the one that was built upon the rock uh, stood firm, the one that was on the sand, obviously, we know went splat, right? Okay, uh, we know that from the good doctrinal children's song. But we see that, uh, that in that passage, it talked about the doctrine, okay? It talked about doctrine. And so that's the key. We, we want to make sure that we have good doctrine, and doctrine is a set of beliefs that you base um, everything off of, okay? So the beliefs of an independent Baptist church that separate it from other churches could be summarized in, a cro in an acrostic of the name Baptists, okay? And so you're going to get the first uh, four letters tonight, okay? If we took the name Baptist, made it across this, B-A-P-T-I-S-T-S, okay? Plural Baptists, we would, uh, we can, we can come up with a list of things that we would identify and say, okay, these are things that we would hold to, that we would believe, reasons that we identify as Baptist, okay? And so as we do that, we're going to go through those first four ones tonight, okay? The first one is the letter B, and that is Bible 
authority, Bible authority. Now, we're not going to spend a ton of time here because just a couple of weeks back, we spent three weeks going through and talking about the Bible and the authority that it had and how it's the foundation and everything that we believe, okay? And so we, 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 we've already spent a great deal of time on that, but just a couple of verses to, to reflect on and remember, 2 Timothy chapter number 3, verse number 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, 2 Peter 1. 21, and the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul gives the testimony there. For this cause also we thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the words of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also, you, also in you that believe. And so we see, first of all, like I said, if you, if you want super in-depth. You guys were all here for it, but you can go back and you can listen to our study through the Bible, uh, uh, the, as we talked about bibliology, the Bible being our authority and final authority. Um, this is key. This, this is obviously important, and, and uh, I was even talking with someone recently, and uh, they, we, I was talking with them, and they were sharing some of their thoughts about something. Some, I was sharing my thoughts, and I told them this. I said, listen, I said, we all have to have a final authority, at some point in time, we all have to go to, we all have to come to a place. There all has to be common ground somewhere, and we either have to decide if it's going to be God and His Word, or if it's going to be me and my beliefs. Uh, that's what it all comes down to. And so, if it's not Bible and His Word, then sure, we can take all of these and we can twist them and move them around and make them say whatever we want to. And because why? Because then I'm the final authority. But that's not the way that it is. God and His Word is the final authority. And we have to look at God's Word. We have to understand God's Word in its original, understand context uh, of what it means. And uh, as we do that, we will better understand God's heart as He wrote the scriptures for us. And that's something to think about. Um, you know, as you, read, as you read the Bible, this is one thing that's so important as you're reading the scriptures is to, is to read it in context and to think about the original, who he was writing to and why it was being written that way and things like that. Um, it'll minister you, to you in such a different way. Um, I'd encourage you, if you don't have one, go and, and, and get a good historical book on, uh, on the Bible, um, or uh, you, can, you can go and you can, you can look up commentaries and things like that that can get. There's actually a free commentary. Now, I don't, I don't recommend everything that he says um, because um, he would hold positions on specifically salvation that are Calvinistic, uh, but uh, I would highly recommend there's a, an, an app that you can download by John Maxwell, um, and it's called, let me look real quick because I'm going to get it wrong. But this, yeah, uh, it is, uh, what is this called? Not Truth for Life, that's a different one. All right, it's going to pull up here in just a second. Um, I'm going to pull this up and I'm going to tell you what it is. So basically, John Maxwell, for, for some of the things that he teaches, not John Maxwell, yeah, John Mar MacArthur. John, John Maxwell is not, he's, he's a leadership author, not a, not a pastor. Anyway, okay. <laughs> he's got a lot of good things too, but that's not what we're talking about. Okay, uh, Grace to You, that's what it's called, Grace to You. Um, it's an app that you can download, and um, in it, you can actually go through and um, it's free. I think it's free. It might be like five bucks or something like that. But you can download it on your iPhone. You can download it on your iPad. You can download it on, on your stuff. Um, it's called Grace to You. And um, 
it's, it's, it's a Grace to You study Bible, and you can actually go through it, and at the beginning of each book, he actually goes through and gives a historical background of what that book, what's going on in that book. And so sometimes it's good to, to whenever I'm reading the Bible, if I'm getting into a new book, and I don't know what the background is, I'll jump on there, and, or I'll look at some other resources. But just to get a background of why is this being written, and I understand that within its context, because God has an intentional reason and, and a way that it was written for a specific purpose. And whenever we're able to, to look at it that way, the closer we can get to understanding the mind of God and what was being said, the better it's going to be. And so that's, that's such an important thing, and, and God's Word comes alive so much more when we do that. Okay, so that's Bible authority. Next, and we're going to spend some time here. Autonomy of the local church. Autonomy, A U T. O-N-O-M-Y, A-U-T-O-N-O-M-Y, autonomy of the local church, okay? What does that mean? It just simply means that there's one head. Ultimately, that's what it means. We're going to see that, okay? Colossians 1.18, we've mentioned this before. And he is the head of the body, speaking of Christ, the church, okay? So the, the church has one head. I've heard it, you've probably heard it said before, anything with more than one head is a monster, Okay, uh, that's that's just uh, that's just the facts of things. Um, you know, we, we if the if the church has many heads, it's just a monster. We we have one head, and that's Christ. Ephesians five gives us a great breakdown, and, and Ephesians five really and I don't know, maybe maybe flip over there and look at these verses because this this does give us a picture of the husband and wife relationship and, and as far as the way that it should work and this is this is something that, that we often will will go to when we're specifically talking about that but there's some great doctrinal truths when it, that we learn regarding Christ and the church in Ephesians 5. And it's important for us to understand that. And so just as, as much as there is to learn about the relationship uh, of the husband and the wife and the roles that they play with each other and in a marriage, there's just as much there when it comes to the relationship of Christ and the church. Okay, so Ephesians 5, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. So in this first two, two verses, we see, okay, Christ is the head of the church. We've already heard this in, in Colossians 1.18, but again, it's reiterated, okay? There isn't many people that's the head of the church. There's one head, and that head is Christ. In fact, there's not any person that's the head of the church. It is Christ. That is the head. He is the one, okay? And, and with that, the church is subject and submission to Christ, all right? Um, what's it going to say? Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and he gave himself for it. So we see the sacrifice. Christ loved the church so much that he gave himself for the church, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. I love this because uh, that's that's his goal. That's that's his goal that he wants to do with the church. And, and what does he do? He wants to cleanse it. He wants to purify it. He wants us to become holy. How does he do it? By the washing of the water of this book. Uh, the, the, the hearing of God's word will cleanse us, will purify us, will make us um, more like him, that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That's God's desire. We, we talked about that some time ago whenever we were, we were going through in Ephesians and we were talking about uh, God's role and God's goal for the Christian uh, is to be holy and to, to, to be complete in him. That's what God's desire is for the church. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. 
for no man yet hate his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Okay, the Lord, we see again what the Lord does. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. Okay, just as God ordained the husband to be the head of the house, so Christ is to be the head of the church. So what does that mean? Well, that means that we as a church do not look to a state church or a world church or an organization uh, as some religions do. Uh, we, we look to one, and that is Christ. He's the one that we look to for everything. We do not believe, like the Catholic Church, that we must come to a priest or to Mary or to a pope or someone like that. We do not believe that an organization can place, uh, can place and move the bishops around because they are under that organization. I have a, an aunt who married a, a, a guy that uh, he was a, a preacher, a bishop in a, in a Methodist church. I don't remember if they called them uh, bishops or what they call them, but he, he was basically the pastor of, of a church there in, in Indiana. And he started preaching a little too much that of the Bible. Imagine that. I mean, too much on salvation and not being by works and, and uh, started getting a little too close to what the Bible actually says, right? And uh, the, the diocese that were above him, whatever, I forget what they call themselves, uh, what did they do? Well, they said, well, you, we can't have you preaching that. You're, you're kind of leading this church a little too far away from our Methodist beliefs. So what did they do? They picked him up and they moved him to another place. I think it was in Iowa. I forget exactly where it was, but he got there. And about that time, the Methodist church was changing their positions on homosexuality and things like that. And he made it clear that he was not going to support that, that the Bible speaks Contrary to that, that homosexuality is sin. And they didn't like that either. And so what did they do? They picked him up and they moved him to another place. And about the third time that they moved him after that, he said, well, listen, I, I don't, they were going to try to move him again. He says, I don't think that I can continue in this denomination. I don't think I can continue in this religion. And he, he removed himself from that. Now, uh, with that being said, it's it's very interesting that, uh, the, that there's a, some places, some churches that have other churches over them. And we never find that model in the scriptures. Uh, that's not the way that it's supposed to be. We, we don't pull our money together and give it to a higher organization so that they can divide it and, and make a decision of where it's supposed to go. We don't find that example in the New Testament, okay? We are an independent, self-governing church, okay? Uh, autonomy. We're under Christ, not a man or an organization, uh, I've, I've had people that, that have come to me and said, well, well, what do you, you know, who, who do you, uh, who, who, who is your authority? Who do you go to? Who tells you what to do? You know, you're the pastor of the church. Who, who's supposed to tell you what to do? Christ. <laughs> uh, that's, that's the one that we submit to. We submit to, to the Lord. Now, now listen, there's sometimes that I think, man, it would be a lot easier if I could just have somebody else tell me what to do, you know? But that's not the way that it works, okay? Uh, we, we submit to Christ. He's the head of the church. He's the one that leads this church. He's the head of Whitehall Baptist Church. We submit to him, and we submit to his word, not uh, the interpretation of some organization of the scriptures passed down to us. No, we submit directly to this book. Christ is our high priest, according to Hebrews 14, or excuse me, Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 15. It says, A seeing then that we have a high priest 
that has passed into heavens, the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. As an independent church, we are self-governed according to God and His Word. Only from the Scriptures. Sola Scriptura. Okay, that's, that's what it means. Only Scripture. Only Christ. Christ is the head, and we submit directly to Him. There isn't another church, an institution, that tells us what to believe or how we should act or what we have to do. No, we submit to the Lord. We see this is the way church discipline was carried out in Acts chapter number 15. This is interesting. If you, if you want to flip over to Acts 15, you can kind of jump through this with me. But in Acts, Acts chapter number 15, we actually find an example of church discipline being carried out by uh, a specific church. And uh, basically the situation was, in, in Acts chapter number 13, Paul and Barnabas had been sent out of the church at Antioch. All right? uh, Antioch was the place where Christians were called, uh, where, where the believers were called Christians first. All right? They were called Christians at Antioch. We talked about it before. Antioch was, was the place that the uh, majority text came out of, which is where we get our King James Bible and, and many of the Bibles that, uh, that we would hold to, the received text today. Um, it was where the, the foundation of missions, where Paul and Barnabas were sent out of. In Acts chapter number 13, verse 1, it says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simon, uh, Simeon, uh, that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manian, uh, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. The Holy Ghost said, Separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and they sent them away. So that was that was where Paul and Barnabas were sent out of. They were sent out of Antioch. So as we come to chapter number 15, there's an interesting situation that takes place. In Acts chapter number 15, I guess I should get there. Acts chapter number 15, um, here, there's a, there's a couple of guys that come down from the church at Jerusalem. They were, they were a part of that church up at Jerusalem, and they had come down to Antioch. It says, And certain men which came down from Judea, or Jerusalem, taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Uh, they, they came in, and literally they began to teach to the church there. They, they came in and began to spread that salvation was by works. That's what they were saying. Okay, verse number two. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, that's I always that kind of cracks me up. I mean, Paul is a fiery guy. I mean, like as you read the the his epistles and things like that, you can just see that about him. I mean, he was just uh, he didn't cut around corners, things like that. He was pretty much like on the nose. And so when it says there was no small dis, uh, di, uh, the, there was no small dissension and disputation, you can imagine kind of what that must have been like. Like Paul was coming along, like who do you think you are? Okay, I mean, like it was that was the way that it was. Uh, and they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem and to the apostles and elders about this question. And so we see in, in verses 2 and 3 that, that Paul and Barnabas, they make their way up to Jerusalem, which is where these, uh, these people had come down from. Uh, they go up to Jerusalem and they talk to Pastor James. That's who they go and they talk to, Pastor James. And uh, Pastor James is the church at Jerusalem. Many believe that the church at Jerusalem could have had as many as twenty-five or 30,000 members. Uh, so you can 
can imagine the headache that, that James must have had. So anyway, uh, but I mean, this massive church with, with all these people, and, and clearly there were some that had gotten confused, that had gotten some things a little bit off, and then come down here to Antioch and were teaching something that was incorrect. In verses 4 through 11, and we won't spend time reading all of these, I encourage you to go back, they explain to the church at Jerusalem what was happening, the false teaching that, that these members had been teaching to the church at Antioch, what they had come down and what they had been telling uh, those Christians there. And in verses 13 through 29, Pastor James of Jerusalem goes on to tell the congregation and Paul and Barnabas and those members, assumingly as well, that the church at Jerusalem stands on salvation by grace through faith, not of works. That's what he goes on and he does. Now, it's interesting. You say, Kyle, what does this have to do with anything? Well, it wasn't the church at Antioch that administered discipline to these people that came down. No, they went back up to the church at Jerusalem where they were from, and it was the church at Jerusalem that administered the discipline to these that were teaching something that was contrary to the Scriptures. Again, we, the, the church at Jerusalem didn't have authority over the church at Antioch, and the church at Antioch didn't have any authority over the church at Jerusalem. They each were individual entities governed by themselves, teaching their own things, but what they found out is that they were uh, in alignment with each other when it came to the beliefs and the teachings of the scripture okay so one of the staples of an independent baptist church is that we are not under any organization or other church that tells us what we must believe the church uh, does the becks that were, that have been with us for, for so long they just launched out and started their church over in uh, in butte and uh, that week while they were over there they had a commissioning service and the home church pastor from all the way back in, in north carolina had come all the way out here and they had a special service in which they said okay at this time we are commissioning you to no longer be sent out of our church no longer to be under the umbrella of our church we are commissioning you you are going to have your own church you're no longer under our authority, you are your own church. And that's the way that it's supposed to be. Uh, the churches are supposed to send out people to go and plant individual churches that, listen, aren't reporting back for the authority of, uh, of, of that church, but are individual institutions that are ordained by God that submit solely to the Lord. Okay, so autonomy of the local church that is the A. All right, next, P, the priesthood of the believer. And we'll get through this one and maybe one more point after that, okay? The priesthood of the believer. Listen, I love this one. This is one of my favorite parts, and, and we could spend an entire evening just going through this and talking about this. We won't spend the whole night looking at it, but this is such a powerful part of, uh, of the Christian life. Um, and I hope that you get this, and you maybe take this and dive into it for yourself, because you see, this is just such an encouragement, okay? First Peter chapter number 2, verse number 9, tells us this, but you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness in a marvelous light. The Bible tells us that whenever we become followers of Christ, as, as a part of the bride of Christ, that we are called a royal priesthood. And so just like the Old Testament priests, we as New Testament priests 
ought to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to go out and, uh, and get the cow at our house and bring it in here on Sunday and, and uh, you know, and cut it and, you know, there's going to be blood everywhere. And things. I mean, like, we're not going to do that, okay, uh, here at the church. That's, that's not what we're talking about. But as priests, as a royal priesthood, we have sacrifices as well that we should offer. Well, what are those sacrifices? What should they be? Well, first of all, the sacrifice of prayer. Prayer. Is an, is an important one. We find this in Revelation chapter number 5, verse number 8. I, I'd encourage you, flip over there. This is, this is such a great, this is so good. Revelation chapter number 5, verse number 8. I want you to see this. This is so cool. And th- this is convicting. This is just so convicting. Okay, Revelation chapter number 5, verse number 8. We get a glimpse into the throne room here. It says this in Revelation 5, 8. And when he had taken the book... The four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps. And listen, and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Listen, this is right before all of the, 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 these elders that the Bible talks about, these, these people that are here, uh, that right before they fall down and begin to proclaim, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor and power. Right before they, they do that, right before they, they, they're worshiping the Lord and all these different things, the Bible tells us that at this point that they have their harps that they begin to play, but then they have these golden vials full of odors. It's, like, it's kind of like this picture of, of, a, of a perfume box or perfume. Uh, container, you know, and it's got that liquid that's inside of it, right? And he says this, he says that this, this golden vial that we have, this, this golden vial that's full of this odor, he says, listen, this is a sacrifice that we're going to give to the Lord. That's what they're doing here. They're offering these sacrifices to the Lord. And he says, you know what this sacrifice is? He says, it's the prayers of the saints. It's your prayers and my prayers. Just think about that. Isn't that isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing that our prayers are, are somehow, some way, they're condensed. I, I don't know. There's some type of transition that takes place between my lips and the throne room of throne room of God, in which they change from my words into a beautiful perfume. That's that's so cool. Okay, and it goes into this vial that one day is going to be taken, and they're going to take those vials, those 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 beautiful prayers, and they're going to offer them as a sacrifice, as an odor to. The Lord. That's so cool. Here's the convicting part. How full is my vial? How full is your vial? How much is in there? Because the truth is, is, is for, for many Christians, one of the most difficult parts of the Christian life is prayer. <laughs> we were talking with someone this past week and, and, and doing some counseling and things, and, and they, they made the comment that said, you know, we wanna, I want to continue to grow in my Christian life. So the thing that I struggle with the most is my prayer life. And, and the truth is, is, is most, most of us, most Christians, uh, could grow in the era of, of a prayer life and having a walk with God and, and really having that time of prayer. But here specifically, the Bible tells us that, listen, our prayers are going to be placed in these, these vials that are going to be offered and, and worship and sacrifice to the Lord. So the first sacrifice that we offer are prayers, our prayers to the Lord. What's the second one? The second one is our praise, our praise. So we offer a sacrifice of prayer, a sacrifice of of praise. We find this in Hebrews chapter number 13, verse number 15. It says this, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Oh, listen, when we're supposed to be continually offering this sacrifice. The Bible tells us, continually offering the sacrifice of praise to the Lord. That it's supposed to be continually on our lips. 
That we're supposed to be constantly praising God and lifting up His name and worshiping the Lord. And it'll constantly be on our lips. Listen, if it's going to be on our lips, that means it has to be audible. Okay? I mean, like, that's just, I mean, it just makes sense. Okay? Yes, we can praise God in our minds. We can praise God in our hearts. Absolutely. But we ought to praise God with our lips. That should be an important, that should be a part of our life, and it should be every day. It shouldn't just be on Sundays. It shouldn't just be during church services. It should be all, every day, all day, all the time. We ought to offer the praise, of, the sacrifice of praise to God continually, the Bible tells us. Constantly. And how often do we go days without spending any time in praise for the Lord? Oh, it's convicting. The sacrifice of prayer, the sacrifice of praise, thirdly, the sacrifice of possessions. Possessions. Man, if we're a royal priesthood, it's our duty to offer these things, just like there was a duty in the Old Testament. It's our duty to offer these things. How are we doing? Sacrifice of pray, prayer, sacrifice of praise, sacrifice of possessions. Philippians 4.18, Paul says this, But I have all in abound, and I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent uh, from, from you, an odor of sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. What was Paul referring to? He was referring to a tangible, physical offering sacrifice that was given to the Lord on his behalf. That's what he was referring to. Uh, in, this, in Philippians chapter number 4 specifically, it was referring to physical needs that he had that somebody was giving to meet those needs, specifically the church at Philippi. He was writing and saying, listen, God used you to, he, he sent it by way of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus brought it to me. Maybe it was monetary. Maybe it was something tangible, physical that he brought. But he says, listen, it was something that, you, that was given to me. It was a sacrifice. It was acceptable. And listen, it was well-pleasing to God. He says, you gave it to me. But listen, it was a sacrifice to the Lord. Our possessions now, that's, that's an important thing. Everything that, we, everything that we have, don't forget everything, is from the Lord. There's not anything that we have that wasn't given to us by God. Anytime that we start to grasp firmly the things of this world, you can mark it down, we're probably pretty close to losing it. <laughs> because we're terrible at holding on to things. We try, but God says, listen, it's not about you and holding on to things. He says, listen, it's about me. And what I give you is supposed to be used for my honor and for my glory and for my worship. All right? For a sacrifice to him. So our possessions. And then fourthly, our person. Our person. So we think about these sacrifice that we offer. The sacrifice of prayer. The sacrifice of praise. The sacrifice of our possessions. And fourthly, the sacrifice of our person. Our person. Romans chapter number 12, verse number 1. Such a familiar verse. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. This is the Isaiah calling out to God and saying, Here am I, Lord. Send me. It always amazes me. This last week, actually, I was, I was listening to a message and a preacher began to talk about that, that instance in Isaiah chapter number, number 6. God never called Isaiah. Isn't that interesting? God never says, Isaiah, I want you to go. The Lord says, whom, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here am I, Lord, send me. There's a lot of people that are sitting back saying, I'm just waiting on that call. I'm just waiting on that call. I'm just waiting on that call. And God says, no, no, no. I want you to give yourself as a willing sacrifice, a living sacrifice. Present yourself. That's what Isaiah did. 
here am I, God. You, you didn't call me, but God, if you'll use me, I'm here. Now, here's the cool part. As we think about church, we think about ecclesiology and the doctrine of it, what's awesome is that we can do all of these things in a church service. All of these things ought to be present in a church service. Think about it. The, the sacrifice of our prayer. Oh, listen, what is a church service if you don't spend time in prayer? <laughs> I mean, I, I, no, listen, a lot of people think when we pray in a church service, it's, it's like that good minute and a half to catch up on a little bit of sleep, okay? But that's not what it's supposed to be, all right? It, we, we ought to be communing in our hearts to the Lord during that time and offering a sacrifice of prayer to the Lord. The sacrifice of praise. What do we do? We sing songs to the Lord, unto the Lord. That's why we're very specific about the songs that we sing. We don't sing songs about, oh, look at me and all this. You know, it's not about me. It's about Him. We're offering sacrifice of praise with our lips to the Lord. What, what about the offering time? It's just that awkward moment where everybody's like, oh, no, not this again, right? You know, oh, what is it? It's an opportunity for us to offer sacrifice of our possessions to the Lord. And then I love this, and this is, this is so powerful. At the end of a service, we have a time of invitation, right? Okay, you know, we talk about this. It's a time of invitation. And at the front of the invitation, we have some steps that for some reason, we've called it an altar. <laughs> now listen, look at the, listen to the picture here, okay? We are a royal priesthood. And what do we do? We come forward to an altar, and we lay down the sacrifice of our person on that altar. Oh, it's so, it's so powerful. It's so, it's so incredible. That it's, it, what are we doing? We are fulfilling our, 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 our position, our role as a royal priesthood. Now listen, we should be doing this every day of our life throughout the week, but specifically in a church service, we are doing all of those things at the same time. All of these things throughout the service, we're offering these sacrifices to the Lord. This is why church is so important. This is why gathering together as a call that assembly is so vital. Because we're able to encourage one another as royal priesthoods to, to honor the Lord and to offer our sacrifices to Him. And that is so vital for us each and every day. If we're truly going to walk in a way that's pleasing to the Lord and, and live our lives in a way that's pleasing to Him, then we have to fulfill our role as a royal priesthood before Him and offer our sacrifice of prayer our sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of our possessions, and ultimately the sacrifice of our person. What did Paul say? Paul said it this way. He said, I die daily. <laughs> he said, listen, every day I have to put myself back on that altar. Because Paul knew the problem with a living sacrifice, which is what Rev, uh, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 tells us we're supposed to be. The problem with a living sacrifice is it can crawl back off of the altar. Man, it would be nice if we could just say, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and I'm just going to give this to God and we just crawl on that and, it's, and we've got it taken care of. We never battle it again. Man, I wish that was the way it was. I wish we could just say, Lord, you know I've struggled with this sin in my life. You know I've struggled with this selfishness and this bitterness and you know I've struggled with these things. But God, I'm just going to give it to you and I'm going to crawl on that altar. And, and I wish it was just done. And like, you never dealt with it again. You never battled it again. It's just like, oh, finally, uh, we're, we're, we've got it figured out. But the problem is, is we crawl back off of that altar and the selfishness and the bitterness and all of that stuff comes back 
again. And so the next day we have to get up and we have to crawl back on that altar again. And Paul said, listen, the things that I should do, I don't do. And the things that I, 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 I don't, I, that I shouldn't do, I do do. And he said, I just wish that I just did, didn't have to do all these things. He said, I find within me there's a battle that that, that which I want to do, I don't do. And I should do and I don't do. And, ah! and that's what he said. And he said, so I just die daily. And every day I just wake up and I say, Lord, I'm crucifying myself today. Today I'm crawling on that altar. Lord, you know in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. And so he said, God, I'm, I'm, just, I'm yours. Oh man, Paul understood what it meant to be a royal priesthood. And so many times I think Christians have lost sight of, of who we are in Christ. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. But we miss it. And I hope tonight that we'll see. Oh man, being a part of the church is awesome. And coming and, and worshiping together is awesome. Why? Because I can come in and in just a couple hours, I can offer all of these sacrifices to the Lord corporately together. And that's why it's so awesome, so wonderful as we come together and do it. It's so powerful. And I hope that it encourages us to love the church the way that Christ loved the church. Well, we're going to stop there tonight. We made it through the first three letters. B-A-P, all right? We made it through B-A-P tonight. And now, I know that, that we got more notes on there. I thought we'd get a little bit further. But listen, we'll pick up next time, okay? And we'll jump into the T-I-S-T-S, all right? So we got a little ways to go still, but I promise you, uh, some of those will, will buzz right through. But um, the next one is going to be good. It's two offices, and we're going to jump into that. And I know, Alice, you asked a little while ago about some of this stuff. And so uh, we'll, we'll be getting some more into that about the two offices that the Bible specifically gives us. We're going to talk about what a pastor is, the different roles there's five Greek words that are used to define a pastor, and each one, each word that's used uh, speaks to a specific role that he's supposed to fill, uh, a specific calling that he's supposed to have within that role as a pastor, and that's important for us to look at as well. All right, well, hey, we're going to have a word of prayer, and then we will wrap up this evening.